Hello, welcome to another edition of Time Passages. You've probably worked out that this one's slightly different from previous episodes, uh, not because of the topic material at all, but simply because it's a solitary effort. So it'll be just me discussing the topics today. So it might have a slightly different feel to it. The topic that I want to discuss is the consequences of hyperinflation. And in many ways, this backs off the previous podcast. So it might be worth listening to that one first if you haven't checked it out. And I also want to talk as well about Stresman's 100 Days as Chancellor. Okay, so the Great Inflation of 1923 saw hardship and suffering sweep across Germany. That very year saw great hardship within sections of society, as the Reichsmark fell to worthless levels, summed up by the fact that it cost more to print a banknote than it was actually worth. There was an increase in desperation, unemployment and starvation that saw citizens resort to bartering simply just to get by. Casting a glance back then at a previous podcast both Beth and I uh, did, we discussed that Kuno's government had put forward the policy of passive resistance to combat the growing problems with inflation. And that is where I really want to pick uh, pick up with this episode of Time Passages. I want to explore what happened from the end of 1922, how society was affected by such a catastrophe, the fact that, unlike the Wall Street crash, the Great Inflation Crisis produced an imbalance of winners and losers. I also want to discuss the role of Gustav Stresemann during the Hundred Days of Power, that August coalition of 1923. It would be wise, therefore, to start with Chancellor Kuno. The act of passive resistance was encouraged by Kuno's government when the French invaded the Ruhr in January of 1923. The initial response was outraged by the German people, especially from industrialists who had a clear interest in the Ruhr as a basis for their investments. This angered was fostered into passive resistance with workers going on strike and basically downing their tools. To reinforce this, the government promised to continue with the workers' wages but this would have the effect of meaning that taxes could not be collected in the area, and necessary fuel stocks would therefore have to be imported. It might have sent a message to the French, who anyhow simply drafted in their own workers, but what it means is that Kuno's government didn't address the problem directly. Its actions simply stoked nationalist fever, and deepened the crisis even further. The problem would only be addressed in August of 1923, when Stresman steps into the frame. However, before he did, people were beginning to feel the effects. One such group was those individuals that had a sizable amount of savings. Say, for example, a Munich housewife had saved up 300 marks prior to a hyperinflation. As prices rose within the shops, her savings simply did not. The value of those marks simply stayed the same. This mainly hit the middle class within Germany as they had the incentive to build up savings for the future. They simply became worthless overnight. One interesting example concerns a provincial bank that wrote to a customer during the crisis. On the posted envelope was scrawled 5 million Reichsmarks and the letter inside contained one simple note with an attached letter which read, The bank deeply regrets that it can no longer administer your deposit of 68,000 marks, since the costs are out of all proportion to the capital. 
since we have no banknotes of small enough denominations at our disposal, we have rounded out the sum to one million marks. Enclosed, one million mark bill. One can only imagine the shock and horror on this customer's face when he could barely buy a piece of bread with those savings. A similar pattern played out with the elderly. They suffered very badly as they depended entirely on their pensions or savings that they had put away during their working life. In one photographical source that I've seen, there was elderly women in a church hall selling the best of their bone china, akin to receiving enough money to basically buy a loaf of bread for their supper. In stark contrast, there were some sections of society that could actually keep their head afloat during the crisis. One that readily springs to mind to me are those within the farming community. Food was one of those commodities that readily remained in demand when compared to, say, consumer goods. Those peasants that had staple crops growing could sell or barter at market stores to the desperate and the hungry. As a community, they remained distant as well from the crisis, as it mainly raged in the cities. In theory, they could cut themselves off from the German world and survive on the produce they had cultivated. In a sense, they could remain passive to the effects of the crisis, and as a result, survive. The industrialists, however, survived in a different way, by being more active rather than passive. They were the real winners from the crisis, alongside those paying off their debts in mortgages. Exploitation happened on a large scale for individuals like, and I don't know we've heard this name before, Hugo Steins, one of Germany's leading industrialists. By the end of 1923, he controlled 20% of German industry. What was effectively happening was as large businesses and factories went under, say through mismanagement, individuals like Stein simply bought them up and added them to their growing power base. Historian Eric Weitz even argues that this fitted with the interests of the government. I'm just going to quote him here. The government virtually yielded its role to the representatives of major industry and financial interests. The employers were on the offensive. Workers battered and worn down by the economic crisis. The crisis enabled business to destroy the social measures it had reluctantly conceded to in 1918 and 1919. What Weitz is alluding to here is the concession Steins and others made with Ebert's government back in 1919. They wanted safeguards for ordinary workers. Remember us talking in an early podcast about the Steins-Ligen agreement? Promising an eight-hour working day if the government stepped back from interfering in private enterprise? That one? The hyperinflation crisis, in essence, allowed the industrialists to override the workers' needs. The government, after all, didn't want strikes, and a stall on coal or food production as well. The industrialists, therefore, were able to benefit from such a crisis. Industrial workers suffered when the trade unions were unable to negotiate wage settlements. As prices spiralled out of control, there was a decline in wages. Yet although unemployment did happen during 1923, and rose to 4.1%, this was still a relatively low increase. Many of these workers didn't have savings. Therefore, proportionally to many other groups, they actually lost less. Yet to say they suffered less would also be misguided. Which brings me to my main point. 
it's sometimes unjust here to look at the winners and losers of a conflict through the eyes of class. The historian Pukert, 1991, forewarns the issue of looking at it in such a way. And I want to quote him once again here. Uh, Two individuals from the same class might be affected differently, depending on the precise period in question, the part of the country in which they lived and their exact role within the fabric of the economy. Therefore, looking at it through a statistical bent, therefore misses out an understanding of the human dimension to this crisis. Mortality rates were really high in large towns and cities, affected by the worsening diet. We see a rise in scurvy and dropsy. One particular musical hall song of the time was We're Drinking Away Grandma's House, effectively emphasising the wastefulness that many Germans were taking part in, as they began to panic buy in the early days of the crisis. The speed of living changed overnight, families literally living each day as it came. Another interesting consequence of the crisis was the influx of foreigners into the bustling cities in Germany. If you had a pocket full of foreign currency, you could, in theory, live and in practice live like a lord. One example is the American novelist Ernest Hemingway, who, before crossing the border, exchanged 10 francs, which would be about less, well, yeah, less than a dollar at that time, uh, at a railway station for 670 marks. He would state in his diary uh, that his heavy day of spending would also see him at the end of the day also keep back 120 marks. So therefore for 10 French marks, he's getting the exchange of 670, having a day of spending and still have change left over. Foreigners may have exploited the situation, but so did the criminal underworld, seizing the opportunity to make a tidy sum from the chaos. There was a decline in law and order, and petty theft became more common. This could range from potato farms being plundered or shop windows smashed in the dead of night. There was also a decline in morality, with prostitution, strip clubs and dance halls starting to pick up greater custom, as people resorted to living with this philosophy of live like there is no tomorrow. Individuals were either looking to exploit or abandon any sensibility at the height of the crisis. A very sad statistic indeed was the rise in suicides during the crisis. A sense of shame seemed to pervade in the hearts of some, that to them the only option was to take their own life. As such, this is something that cannot be gleaned simply from statistics. It has been highlighted by some historians that the effects of the crisis instilled a lack of faith in the republican system. In itself, this is a difficult argument to present, as the morality of sections of society are quite hard to quantify and correlate. Yet there is evidence if we kind of look elsewhere. Hitler, in November of 1923, felt disillusioned with the Weimar Republic and angered by the great inflation crisis. He saw it as a perfect opportunity to try to seize power in Munich. However, that lack of faith was prominently there long before Hitler tried to seize power in 1923. So how did Germany actually get out of this mess? I wanted to conclude this episode of Time Passages by examining the role of Gustav Stresemann. Within a few weeks of him coming to power, Stresemann calls off passive resistance and heeded to the calls of the French that reparations would be kept up. He realised aptly that he had to evoke some international sympathy. Government spending was rolled back and a lot of civil servants were actually sacked. 
With the help of Halmar Schacht, a name we'll hear later on, a new currency was ushered in in December of 1923, the Rentenmark. It restored stability because it was backed by the gold standard, which meant its value was, was able to hold. By showing the Western Allies that he was trying to solve the issue of hyperinflation without provocation, it looked conciliatory peacemaking. This enabled him to ask the Allies for a meeting about reparation payments. This is where we get the Dawes Plan in April of 1924, and this allowed a five-year period where Germany could pay according to what it could. The actions of Stresemann as Chancellor helped stabilise Germany. The middle class, what we call the Mittelstand, still held strong resentment to the Weimar government. But the Weimar government was able to survive. And survive it did. It probably helped that anger was more aimed at the French and its occupation of the Ruhr. It probably helped that effects of inflation was varied and not as widespread as it was in, say, the early 1930s during the Great Depression. It probably helped that the Cap and Munich putches failed, as it gave a clear message to the army not to make a move in 1923. The Weimar Republic had its enemies, and people were hostile to it, but it survived, because of the achievements of Gustav Stresemann, and because there was no viable alternative to the democratic system that was in place.